I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Canada's 44th general election is well underway. On September 20th, electors will return members of Parliament who will decide who governs the country. When casting a ballot, however, voters typically think of political parties and their leaders. So we ask, what are the policy priorities of Canada's political parties? On this episode, I speak with candidates from three of the country's major political parties. Angela McEwen of the New Democratic Party, Annamie Paul, the leader of the Green Party, and Nathaniel Erskine-Smith of the Liberal Party. The Conservative Party was invited to participate, but declined. While listening, please keep in mind that the interviews for this episode were recorded at different times and on different dates, beginning with the NDP, followed by the Green Party, and finally the Liberal Party. Changes during the writ period after recording will not be reflected in the interviews. Now, let's get to it. We start with Angela McEwen of the New Democratic Party. You've got a a broad policy book. The NDP released its platform very early, which, by the way, I deeply appreciated. And I think a lot of people did. Uh, There's a lot in there. If you had to pick out a couple of priorities, what would they be and why are they priorities? Wow. Yeah, that's a good question. So my... No pressure. Just summarize the 130 pages. <laughs> exactly. And you know what? Not even all of it is in there. There's like extra announcements right. um, and details outside of it. But for sure. So for me, as an economist, I am really glad to see the parts that talk about um, the tax reform uh, and that talk about public ownership of infrastructure because I think that those are key pieces that that the the current uh, parties aren't really dealing with at all, right? Um, and and that it's kind of a structural change in focus uh, that I think would make a really big difference for people. Uh, so we're seeing that in different areas. So um, the NDP has promised, you know, to work towards building a. Um, a uh, publicly owned telecom. Uh, And so I grew up in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. I love Saskatchewan. I tell everybody about it. I'm like, cell phone bills in Saskatchewan are so much cheaper. And everybody even so popular, the conservatives can't get rid of it, even though they'd love to, right? So um, a, a, a public crown corp for telecoms, I think is important. We've talked about public ownership for interprovincial uh, public transit, uh, all of the private for-profit bus lines have slowly been shutting down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, that plays into uh, stranding people in rural areas. It plays into uh, climate action, actually, because now if you want to visit your family in Halifax, you've got to fly or drive a car instead of hopping on the bus that was already going there, right? So I think that that makes a lot of sense. And then we've also talked about um, you know, bringing long-term care. So in terms of healthcare, bringing long-term care into the public sphere, having strong national standards. So to do that, we'd have to bring it under the Canada Health Act. All of those pieces, I think, are kind of a, they sound like when you just use the the bullet points, they kind of sound a little bit like the liberals, but underneath there's a fundamental different understanding of how the economy works that I think is, is going to... Um, just make it work 
actually work, work so much better for the people who need those services. Yeah, and it strikes me that the fundamental difference there is, and then this difference exists with the conservatives as well, uh, you can either want to foster competition or you can say the market isn't working and so we're going to adopt a public approach and we think that that's going to fill in spots where the market's failed. I mean, I, I remember making this case in Canadian Dimension not so long ago when, when Greyhound said they were done in Canada, that clearly that's a market failure. Exactly. And who's going to step up? It's not really a place where you get competition. And so Saskatchewan had a, a Crown Corp that ran a bus service and the Conservatives did get rid of that. And the, the private for-profit in transportation, they're going to cherry pick the routes that are, you know, where the most people are or where the people have the most money to be able to pay for it. Right. Uh, so if you live farther away from the bigger centers, you're, um, you're kind of out of luck. If you're not profitable to serve, they're not going to serve you in a private for-profit. So we need to, I, I think it's a, it's a different understanding of the role of government in terms of what services do people need, but there's no profit motive there. Right. Um, and so government should step in and provide it because competition, all the incentives to the private sector that you want, aren't going to build more houses that are affordable uh, for people, right? Yes. Um, and so that's an, that's another piece where we're talking about building 500,000 new non-market housing that's deeply affordable um, instead of what the national housing strategy that we have right now, it, it talks about affordability in terms of affordability for people at the average household income. And so if you have an average household income, that's actually a lot more money than somebody who's kind of hovering around minimum wage. Um, so if you're building housing that's affordable for the median, it's nowhere near affordable for somebody who's working minimum wage or who's on a pension, uh, fixed income. And so there's no housing that's getting built at that level because it's not profitable to do so. And the government has stopped doing it. Um, so we need to get back into that and work with municipalities to build non-market uh, co-op housing to actually address that housing crisis that that's happening. Can you walk me uh, thinking about housing policy? And then I want to close off on, uh, I'll give you a bit of, of lead time on this one. I'm talking about things that aren't being talked about. I want to, I want you to think a little bit about what we're not talking about. Mm. And, uh, but for a moment, focus on housing and specifically on renters. So we talk about home ownership in this country an awful lot. You would never know in a million years by proportion that often half of people in the city are renters yeah. uh, in certain metro areas. Uh, the NDP does talk about renters in its uh, platform. I'd say it's probably the most aggressive party on the on the file. I confess I, w I wasn't completely sold by the renter the renter policy at first, but I, I I confess that I might have not fully understand it, uh, understood it. So can you walk me through what that policy is with an eye to sort of uh, not just talking about how it helps renters, but but uh, whether or not it it provides any sort of long-term structural change as well. Right. So, I mean, there is definitely, um, there's a, there's a lot of debate on, on the, the one policy uh, that the NDP has put forward, which is 
a um, a rent subsidy, basically, for people who are paying more than 30% of their household income on rent um, and who are below a certain um, level of income, right? Ah, okay. So... Uh, which is a central distinction that, I, that people ought to keep in mind. I, I miss that. And I miss no, that. I don't think you did. I don't think we were really clear in our, our comms on it. Um, and I'm not sure why. I think we were clearer last time. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a proposal that we had in the last election. I think it's modeled on what the British Columbia government has in terms of a, a rent subsidy at the provincial level. Right. Um, so it's meant to be, because it does take time to build this market housing that we're talking about. Um, and people are struggling right now. Like I'm talking to people on the doors who are spending 70% of their income on rent and they're going to food banks for food. Um, and uh, they really, you know, they've had to to decide whether or not they have a cell phone or internet because they need it for work or for school still, right? Like, so they still right. need that. And the prices are so damn high on cell for cell phone and internet on top. <laughs> exactly. Of it, right? uh, so so that and like libraries are closed now, so people aren't able to go right. and use the library. So right. it's so expensive to to live. Um, that yeah, we're we're talking about giving a temporary rent subsidy to this market. Now, lots of people have responded to me saying, you know, everybody that rents in an urban area uh, probably pays more than 30% of their income on rent. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's part of the problem here. It's really expensive to rent in Ottawa. Rents are more expensive than mortgage payments, right? And so what we're actually doing is creating um, this... <laughs> Really, it's it's pushing the divide between the rich and the poor. So the rich can buy a house and rent it out to someone else um, to pay off the mortgage. And be, just because they had that access to capital or that ability to get financed, uh, it increases their wealth, right? And right. and the renters are are paying extra money. And I'm seeing like these wild rent to own schemes. Anyway, I'm not really answering the question. I'm sorry. I'm talking about the problem. No, I'm glad though. I'm glad the, the rent to own scheme, by the way, I just, as a quick aside, I, I was a little bit dismissive of it, but I joke that ask anybody who's still paying off their rent to own VCR that they have, <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't like rent to own. I mean, I grew up uh, uh, poor and we were as a family uh, part of the rent to own scheme. You'd go into the store, right? In Peterborough, yeah. you rent a VCR, a dresser set, a television. You, in many cases, couldn't afford to pay it off, ultimately and lost it. Um, and, and it's, it's quite the scheme. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I don't quite get it to be honest. Oh, it's, 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 um, it's an outrageous scheme. Um, and I, there's just so many ways that, um, it's expensive to be poor. I mean, yes. and this is yes. one of those yes. ways where if you don't have that capital to start off with, or if you're going to university and you've got this huge amount of debt from student debt that it just takes you so much longer and it's so much more expensive. Um, so in a number of different ways, I think um, our platform is meant to address that because the difference between, you know, the group of people who are feeling like that and then the what the liberals call the middle class, but I would call sort of, you know, upper income earners, 
um, the difference in their lived reality is, is so stark. Um, like people probably wouldn't know what rent to own was, and they might think that that's a reasonable thing to do. Never having lived that because <laughs> it sounds good. Mm, yeah. But when you look into sure, it, it sounds great. Yeah. It sounds great. You're like, Oh, that makes sense. That's basically just like, I pay rent now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, no, you're getting screwed. That's how that works. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. So the, like the, those who can least afford credit, pay the highest credit rates. Exactly. Right? Just, yeah. yeah. And what's the old, the old, there was an old trope or an old story where they used an example of boots. Yes. That, um, the, you know, rich folks could have one set of boots that lasted forever. Poor folks have to buy boots every season and they end up paying more for boots in the long run. And right? I, I yeah. think that's only gotten more worse over time, right? So Walmart sells stuff yeah. that breaks. <laughs> but if you can't afford the the better quality thing, then yeah, you're you're gonna end up spending more money on on this stuff over time. And uh it's something I mean, yeah, so Canada doesn't really have any good consumer protection uh laws, watchdogs, any of that. Uh, but it's it's definitely something that I would like to see more uh, attention paid to. So you were talking about what doesn't get talked about uh, yeah so uh, this is the uh, I, I could talk all night but but at some if if the episode goes too long it'll be election day by the time uh we finish so i, I will have to close out on on the question that, and i'm asking these questions to everybody uh what aren't we talking about or not talking about enough that we should be so we we talk in the ndp we talk about um exploitation and how workers are exploited or how the, the government is exploited, but we often don't talk about how consumers are taken advantage of and what we can do about that. And maybe that's partly because it's like boring regulations um, and that the conservatives have really won the frame on that in terms of red tape. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think Canada really needs to do a much better job in terms of consumer protections and the um, right to repair is a really good example of that. Yes. And, uh, and it's connected to um, there's just, I, I don't know why Canada doesn't do that or Canadians maybe don't seem to demand it as much. We're, um, very polite people. And so maybe, I don't know, but it's really expensive. It, it, it ends up costing people a huge amount of money that we don't have this enforcement. Um, and it goes from housing. So I've talked to people who have had, you know, new houses and they move in and there was to- so many problems. It wasn't up to code. There was no uh, recourse for them. There's no inspection that had been, been done. Uh, by the municipality or whoever, like nobody was basically responsible uh, for ensuring that that building was up to code and they had no recourse to to fix the problem once it was bought. It basically became uh, a money pit and and to, you know, people's phones getting bricked or you can't repair your washing machine so you have to buy a new one. There's so many uh, ways that, that we basically are forced to pay pay more money uh, to corporations for (laughs) things that we shouldn't have to, we should be able to fix stuff. Um, Yeah. So that's one of my big things. Um, And I would just add David quickly. I am, I'm kind of blown away talking to people, how many people are 
uh, still talking about the graves of the children that were found and have orange shirts in the window and are really passionate about reconciliation and the the court cases that are ongoing and making sure that there's um there's funding for the communities that are are identifying uh, these unmarked graves and to to do the the healing it's not something um that i necessarily thought urban voters would be really passionate about but they are they want they thought canada was better and they want their leaders to actually take action to make it be better the parties are, are central i mean i often remind people the parties are so central to to agenda setting and uh, alongside the media so i'm certainly glad that you brought that up and i i certainly agree with both and on right to repair i'll, I'll remind folks that one of the the folks uh, that i pay very close attention to is cory doctorow ah. he's always talking about right to repair bless his heart he's fantastic and um, he's a big advocate for right to repair and so uh, a canadian abroad uh, <laughs> so that gives him extra credibility well that that brings us to time but thank you very much for joining me here today and good luck on the doorsteps thanks a lot david next up is anime paul leader of the green party i want to start with this a broad overview of, of what you think are the uh what you believe to be the green party's policy priorities for this election and and why their policy priorities? Well, we have uh, three pillars uh, that we're working from. Uh, we um, all all of which, of course, are, are interconnected. I think that's one of the at least hopefully one of the big lessons to have come out of the pandemic: uh, the interconnectedness of things. Um, <clears throat> we are talking about uh, first our, our green future. Uh, through a green recovery, and uh, under that pillar, you'll you'll see all of well, the, the they'll say the the, the highlighted items um, that uh, that uh, we consider to be the necessary ones uh, when we talk about uh, dramatically reducing our greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as possible in order to limit um, um, our average global temperatures, uh, to at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to, um, pre-industrial levels. Um, those are things like the, let's say the regulatory infrastructure. So things like carbon pricing, um, we're very excited. Uh, we were the first to propose a, uh, carbon border adjustment, uh, for Canada, um, uh, you know, certainly ending, uh, subsidies for fossil fuels, uh, and then also the physical infrastructure uh, as well. So things like uh, a coast-to-coast, coast, 100% nas- uh, uh, renewable energy, um, electricity grid, um, a network of a uh, national network of zero charge, zero emissions charging stations, uh, retrofitting our buildings, um, those those kind of items. So physical and, and regulatory infrastructure. Uh, and then, of course, um, at the center of it, our our commitment to ensuring that it is uh, equitable, uh, that it's just, and uh, that uh, those who are most profoundly impacted by this transformation uh, have um, have a fighting chance of not being displaced. Uh, the next pillar is our uh, commitment to a life with dignity for every person in Canada. Uh, we've seen how many people uh, throughout this pandemic were left with no protection when the pandemic hit, how many people died unnecessarily in long-term care, 
because of the failures uh, in our system and on and on. Um, we don't want to and we won't forget those lessons. And so this is about completing our social safety net so people can live with dignity from their first day to their last um, through creating new universal programs where they don't exist, uh, but should uh, reinforcing existing ones where they've been neglected, um, things like affordable housing, guaranteed livable income, uh, decriminalization and creating a safe supply and, and you know, other items. Uh, and then finally, uh, a just society, forging a just society um, through reconciliation and dismantling systemic discrimination and um, uh, systemic racism. Uh, again, we can't forget the lessons. Uh, we, we can't let this moment of heightened awareness um, uh, um, fade away as it has so often in the past. Um, if we're not going to let that happen, then uh, we have to get to work and do the work. Uh, which means um, making space for Indigenous leadership, true nation-to-nation engagement, respecting the calls to actions and ha- action and calls um, calls for justice, uh, and um, also um, allowing uh, very deeply underrepresented leadership from uh, marginalized and racialized and equity-seeking groups uh, also to take the lead in designing, redesigning, and reimagining our institutions to make them. More equitable. I want to I dig into the spirit of the of the three pillars in a second, but first I'll give you forewarning of, of the final question I'm going to ask, which is what aren't we talking about in this election or what aren't we talking about enough? So I'll close on that. But first oh I want to... that's so many things. <laughs> so I, yeah, it, this is why I like to give fair warning because okay. it, it could be a, a very well, well, in fact, we could have an election over just what we're not having an election about. But I, yeah. I, you know, when I was listening to you run through the pillars and the particular elements that, that comprise them, I kept thinking to myself, um, uh, well, first of all, I welcome all of them. But second, to what extent can we, can we make these things happen and make them stick in a market economy? I mean, does, does the structure of the market economy itself work against these plans? And, and how, do you, how do you overcome that? Uh, I think that, uh, you know, there's, there, there's a lot, it's an interesting question, you know, I mean, with respect to, to the climate, um, I certainly, after a great deal of thoughts, and I, am sure that, 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 that reflection won't end, um, and, you know, my thinking will evolve, but I certainly, uh, take very much to heart, uh, what the IPCC has told us about the amount of time that we have left. Uh, in order uh, to prevent even higher, um, higher, um, uh, love, you know, higher degrees of of, uh, of climate uh, of climate warming, global warming, uh, from from being set in stone, you know, they've already said that we've got this one and a half degrees um, that is set in stone, and that we can expect more extreme weather and climate events as a result of it, and those things are virtually irreversible at this time, at least certainly within our lifetime. Um, unless there's some dramatic change in, in technology, you know, that's some new, new, um, new novel technology we haven't discovered yet. Uh, and that if we want to avert uh, even um, more of the same, more intensity and more frequency to those events, uh, that, uh, you know, essentially our time has run out. And that's why, you know, it's the code red. Um, and so for me, I feel like uh, there, there simply is not the time uh, for us to be able to to radically reform, um, you know, our market system, uh, while at the same time doing that, 
Uh, and if there are ways uh, to find ways to work with the markets, uh, to work with self-interested nature in order to do this, uh, then uh, we have to uh, we have to we have to try. And it seems to me, on on the basis of what we're seeing from our international partners, um, whether it's the United States or the 27 countries of the European Union or China or elsewhere, that there's a real green rush going on. Um, that there's an understanding that there's a tremendous amount of economic potential uh, in this transformation. You know, it's it's uh, at such a scale and with such little time that there's there's just a, a lot of money to be made. Um, and so, if that if that keeps us moving in the right direction, uh, then that's 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 something that I'm prepared to um, accept. Uh, that being said, uh, we really have, um, I believe. Um, understood again because of the pandemic uh, and because of, of, of the, the impacts of the of climate change that we're seeing in our country, uh, understood that uh, our planet is tired and that it has finite resources and that a system that's built on the, the idea of limitless growth um, and based on overconsumption uh, is not uh, viable. And so we do have to address, let's say, the, the most egregious uh, parts of the system of our market system, if we're going to get um, to our goal uh, within the time that we have left. I feel like that was a lawyer's answer, and, and, and it sounds like it's kind of like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But I think that it's true. We can't continue on the way that we've been going um, because, again, it 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 it, it contradicts uh, the idea of limiting global warming. Um, but uh, at the same time, I don't know if a root to stem. Um, uh, um, uh, reform is is in the cards in the next ten years, for instance. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sort of one of the the first self admitted socialists to admit that if we're waiting around for the revolution to fix our problems, we're never going to fix any of our problems. <laughs> I think I think that's <laughs> that's a succinct way of saying yeah, it. Yeah. Gosh, you know, <laughs> if you hear me say it, I you know, you can take credit that. to you in advance. Yeah, you can take that. I, I'm. This is this. Is, well, what kind of socialist would I be if I didn't want to share? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all. You know, I, I I lived in the states, of course, lived in Europe, and you know, I always make the point to, to people that you know, in Canada, we we we've always been comfortable with that term, and um, you know, many of the things that that uh, they're working for, uh, let's say that the the American left is working for, so still so desperately and feverishly, you know, we've had it for quite some time here. And uh, we actually, we're actually beyond, uh, beyond some of that. So, um, you know, we, we feel more comfortable with that term as we should be because, you know, we've, we've uh, lived with its positive impacts for, for a while. I mean, I don't describe myself in, in that, uh, that particular way, but certainly we have many policies that, you know, that fall into that, um, um, certainly the understanding of, of universal uh, goods and publicly held goods, we're big fans of that. Well, and speaking of that, I mean, what what aren't we talking about? Uh, you know, we're, we're, what is it now? Well, by the time we air, we'll be well into the election. The number one issue that people cite, or the number two issue, I guess, is climate. Climate is routinely one, two, three at the top. It hasn't come up a ton yet. Uh, what aren't we talking about so far? Or what aren't we talking about enough? Uh, oh, there's again, there's so many things. <laughs> I have to say that at this particular moment for Canada, uh, one of the things that we are not talking uh, enough about at all. I mean, I would say today I haven't seen anything about it. 
um, and I saw some very discouraging uh, polling done about it, uh, is our, um, uh, our commitments in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, for those of us who you know, worked uh, internationally, who worked uh, on um, civilian protection and deadly conflict, um, for people like, uh, like me, who's, you know, whose partner was a, a technical advisor on, on the human rights um, components of the, the peace negotiations that were underway with the Taliban, uh, there are thousands and thousands of people who have been left uh, behind. Uh, that includes our own citizens. Uh, and that includes uh, those who supported us uh, in, in, in many different ways. Um, that is something that, uh, that we can do more about and we're not. And uh, it is something, unfortunately, that it seems like many people believe we are, we are incapable of doing more uh, than we have. And so uh, for me, um, given what I believe it will mean uh, to those people, first and foremost, uh, who be left behind to those Canadians, who are trapped, uh, and also what it will mean to Canada's uh, international reputation, uh, what it will mean to, to um, uh, you know, how much stake people, uh, our international partners, the international community puts in uh, the reliability of, of the word of people of Canada, the people of Canada. I think that that's something that we're, um, we're not talking about enough. Um, I also think that uh, we're, we're not talking enough about um, uh, the the deaths, you know, the uh, the deaths that are caused every single day uh, through drug poisoning. Um, these are these are this is something that we can do something about immediately to save lives. Uh, and whenever you have solutions like that that you can immediately put into place that would save lives, and you're not doing it, um, that's always a problem. And given that we're losing uh, um, 17 people a day on average, and the numbers climbing, you know, the the, the that the pandemic made the numbers skyrocket. Uh, that's something that is also really troubling. Um, we know we need to decriminalize. Uh, we know we need to create a national safe supply program. We know that those things would save lives and have in other countries, um, but uh, we have not seen the action yet. And I will say just for listeners that I mean, we're recording these interviews over the course of, of several days. And tonight we're recording on August 30th. So this reflects that moment in time. That said, I suspect, given the arc of our history and the arc of the election so far, I, I suspect you're right that this, these issues won't, certainly won't dominate or come up as, as much as they uh, ought to. Uh, that brings us to time, though. So thank you very much for, for joining me for this. I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. We close with Nathaniel Erskine-Smith of the Liberal Party. Okay, let's start here. What are the Liberal Party's policy priorities and perhaps more importantly, what makes them priorities? If you can give me a rundown of, of a couple key areas. There are any number of promises in a platform that's over 80 pages, but the <laughs> top priorities really are finishing the fight against COVID-19, uh, focus on affordability and fairness, better health care, serious climate action, reconciliation, and learning the lessons of this pandemic to have a more resilient economy going forward, a more sustainable economy, I would say, going forward. All right, so that's a lot of stuff. It is. <laughs> Where do you want to start? It's a, lot of, it's a lot of priorities. I mean, which is good. I mean, this is. I've been arguing this is uh, a, a, an absolutely critical election. We're facing overlapping and intersect, uh, intersecting crises. Uh, if you had to, what, what are you hearing on the doors, or what are you talking about at the doors when you're going around? Uh, what's standing out as, as particularly important to people? 
in my riding here in the East End of Toronto, Beaches East York, a number of people will ask us about climate action and, and question the progress we've made and raise questions around affordability, certainly for both childcare and housing. And we'll, especially in the wake of the thousands of unmarked graves and the very different Canada Day we all acknowledged, I think, rather than celebrated, that there is very much a top of mind clean water on reserves and advance and reconciliation in a more serious way. And a big part of the conversation is articulating the progress that we've made because we've made really significant progress. And my message to constituents is we need to protect and build upon that progress. We need more ambition, yes, but let's protect the progress so we can build on it. And then to articulate how we plan to build on the progress through the, the commitments we're making in the platform. And I guess the one area that is also quite top of mind is we are living through a health crisis and people want to know that vaccination rates are going to continue to increase and they're and they want to know as they send their kids back to school that there are sensible vaccine mandates and that we're going to have a stronger healthcare system going forward. I want to dig into uh, affordability a little bit for, for a moment and then I'm going to give you fair warning I want to talk about what's not being talked about so I'll give you sort of lead time on that but first I want to get into affordability and sort of a nebulous term that seems to mean whatever people want to particularly talk about at the moment, whether it's inflation or housing or childcare or whatever it might be. But I want to focus specifically on, on affordability as it pertains to housing and, and childcare. Uh, the, the liberal vision for childcare is uh, $10 a day daycare, agreements across the country. On housing, I'm trying to make a little bit more sense of it because it seems demand side heavy. So I'm wondering if you could give me a sense of, of how you imagine, how the party imagines uh, daycare making life more affordable for folks, and then how it, it reconciles the idea that, that uh, demand-side housing initiatives could raise housing prices. So an easier one and then a harder one. Sure. <laughs> a nice balance here. Sure. So on the question of childcare, I would first say this really is an, an important frame of mind to be in to articulate the progress. So we have seen over 400,000 kids lifted out of poverty because of the Canada Child Benefit. That is not a way to create a childcare system, but it is a way to support families with kids. And, and that's what we've done since 2015. And we've laid down markers. So there was a, a series of bilateral agreements with provinces to increase the federal role in childcare. And there's been a lot of work, especially ever since Minister Freeland became the finance minister, but her and Minister Hussein certainly move forward with this commitment to a national childcare framework and a national childcare plan to the point that we obviously have many deals with provinces already in place. And the goal there is to slash fees by 50% by next year and to then build out the system in a sustainable way into 2026. And we know that this is not pie in the sky. I got a question at the door yesterday is this for real? And my answer is yes, because the budget, the, the money has been earmarked in the budget months ago, and we have deals already in place. And so really for the first time in my political career, we are seeing a, a real possibility that childcare can be delivered. And in the city of Toronto, you are looking at saving on, you know, on the estimate from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, over $11,000 a year by 2022. So on the question of affordability, childcare obviously is a, is a major cost driver. If you've got one kid in childcare, it's hard. If you've got two kids in childcare, it is impossible. And so this will make a meaningful difference for, for many families across the country. 
And on, on uh, housing, uh, how do we sort of reconcile the, the need? The fact is we need to build a lot more housing. The party is opposed to doing away with the first uh, the exemption on, on selling principal residences. Uh, but what has a number of, of demand side initiatives, including the tax-free savings account and, and tax credit measures. How, do, how does that all hang together if the, if the final goal is, is housing affordability? My own view is that we need to emphasize supply first and foremost. And I would say all parties have made commitments that are similar, not exactly the same, but similar in terms of building out new supply, whether it's a million new units or 1.4 million or 1.7 million. The real question is, what can credibly be done at the federal level to move and to push back against some of the constraints that that cause the supply to, to fail to keep up with demand? And we at the in our platform, one area that really stood out to me was this $4 billion accelerator fund to basically use the federal spending power as a carrot to push municipalities to adopt inclusive zoning and affordability, to push back against NIMBYism and to really address some of the supply constraints. On the challenge around demand, we we face two concurrent challenges, I would say, as it relates to affordability. One is the general concern about increased home prices. And the goal, I think, of our housing policy has to be to stabilize home prices such that incomes can catch up. And I don't think any parties usefully articulated that, but I I do think that has to be the goal of federal housing policy in partnership, obviously, with provincial and municipal governments because they hold greater levers in the end as it relates to zoning. But I would say that the other challenge is helping young Canadians get into the market and demand side measures. Well, there's a delicate balance here where you want to help first time home buyers without putting additional fuel on the fire. And and I would say all parties are in this game in different ways. And, And the conservatives, for example, have talked about relaxing the stress test that has a similar demand side effect. The mm-hmm. our commitment on the savings account is really important for first-time home buyers. But you know, if I'm being honest and and less sort of partisan in an election, I would say, yeah, there's there's obviously a balance that we need to strike, and, we, and it's a delicate balance, and we have to be cautious and careful about further fueling the the demand side when we know that there's already such demand in the system and supply can't keep up. And so, overwhelmingly, the effort has to be the doubling down on whether it's rapid housing initiative for ending homelessness, but but more critically, the commitment in the platform, doubling down on the co-investment fund to, you know, and I've spoken to Mayor Kennedy Stewart out in Vancouver. He said the federal loans really do drive affordability. We, we can make them work and they're, and they're hugely influential in building affordable housing. So we we have, I think, strong policies in place overall in many respects, but we haven't really ratcheted them up with a degree of ambition to meet the scale of the challenge. And I think we're starting to see that from all parties in, in this election on housing. Yeah, no, no, you're, I mean, you're right. Every party has demand side uh, measures in their in their platforms. Of course, you know, my line is all my question is always. For leaders, how much do you want to see home prices fall? Of course, no one ever wants to see home prices fall because uh, of, well, how much uh, we're bound up with equity concerns. And, and in fact, 
retirement concerns too. But right? we should emphasize that the housing market needs to stabilize so that incomes can catch yes. up. Because when, there's a professor at NBC, Paul Kershaw, who heads up Gen Z's, and I've been in touch with him any number of times. I worked with him to push generational analysis into the budget cycle a number of years ago. And it is wild when you look at the trajectory over the last 40 years, and it used to take on average five years to save up a down payment. And in some of our urban centers, it now takes over 20 years, and, and that is yeah. unacceptable. And so we do need to stabilize the housing market and allow incomes to catch up. The other piece on demand side that stuck out to me in the platform, because I was, I was scrutinizing this more closely, was a commitment to review the stringency of stress tests and down payment rules for investment properties, because we saw what New Zealand has done, mm -hmm. which for investors who are buying second, third, fourth, et cetera, properties, so not primary residences, but for investment properties, they increase the down payment significantly and they increase their stress test. And so we have said, we're going to take a look at that. And I think that would be a useful way of, of tamping down on, on demand while also respecting the, the, the desire of people to, to get in the market for a home to live in. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that very much. All that said, I've given up on home ownership. I'm one of the, <laughs> not young anymore though. You know, I'm in that, uh, that nebulous uh, <laughs> period where I'm not young anymore. So, but I'm not old. You know how there's a certain age where effectively government's sort of like, well, you're not in our target range. <laughs> I, I'm, I might be in the same range. And I, yeah, yeah, I think you and are. I'm 37 and I'll tell you, so I, my wife and I bought the house that she grew up in because it's been in the family for so long. She's seventh generation in a farming community and her dad was thinking about selling the land. And so her brother and I, her brother and her spoke about it and we kept it in the family. So we, we rented out to a family friend in Kimlaki, Ontario. And the, you know, I'm, I'm technically a landlord or my wife's a landlord, I guess, on my disclosures, but I, I, I've never bought in the city of Toronto. I rent here. Right. And in part, because we, you know, we, we opted to buy that home instead at, at the time. And so I, I feel the the real anxiety of constituents who I make a good living. I, you know, my salary is public and it's not as high as my commercial litigation lawyer colleagues from a previous life, but it's still <laughs> well above the the average income. And to hear constituents who are struggling to get by in minimum wage or middle income jobs, uh, if I feel the if I look at you know my salary coming in and I see rent going out and I see rents on the marketplace as we look at you know our our families growing and we we might need more space and I look at current rents because we started renting six years ago I I can I feel the anxiety and the challenge and and if it's if if I'm at all anxious about it when I shouldn't be with the salary that I've got I can only imagine what it what it what it's like for people who are on minimum wage and middle income salaries right so yeah. it is a real and. and and it has knock-on consequences for, for our cities and for innovation even. I mean, if we want people to be willing to come to our urban centers to work and and we need affordable housing, it's not only a matter of fairness. I think it's also just a matter of smart policy. But on that note, what aren't we talking about? I mean, we're, we're recording this on September 7th, uh, the election September 20th. We've got about roughly two weeks to go. What hasn't played as much of a role in this election as, as we thought it might or, or think that it should? I have been shocked that we are not focusing on climate change and the climate crisis as much as I think we should be. There have been experts that have weighed in, but I haven't seen 
the the focus of debates or the focus of the public conversation uh, really really narrow on what I, what I think is critical. You know, one of the lessons we've learned in this pandemic is governments can really bring a sense of determination to solve and to respond to a crisis. And we need to bring that same scale and determination to re resolving and responding to the climate crisis. And we see Mark Chicard, a sustainable energy economist, who's graded the liberals with very high marks, much to the surprise of some, I think, eight out of 10 <laughs> versus some other parties. And, and there's some conspiracy theories I saw. I, I've seen some very bizarre, you know, uh, losing one's mind reactions because, you know, it, we live in a partisan world. And if your party hasn't been selected by uh, an expert, then there, you know, there's always a reason for it. But uh, Andrew Weaver, former BC Greens leader and, and, and climate science expert he's also endorsed the liberal plan and i think for me it's really important this is one of the reasons i i strongly support the liberal party and I, and I was very happy to run again when we took office in 2015 projected 2030 emissions were 815 megatons after all of the policy making over these last six years with a pandemic thrown in for good measure by the way so he will say you've had a long time it hasn't been so very long considering how the, the slow pace of change and where we started from but we now sit at 468 megatons. That's over a 40% reduction when you look at projected 2030 emissions, so long as all those policies hold, and we're not done yet. So there are any number of measures in this platform that will help to drive emissions down further. And it's not only more ambitious, because we now, you know, people will say, I think the NDP platform even says, you know, no Canadian government, no liberal government has met a target. But in fact, we have. The, the target was 511 megatons, and our current policies set us on a trajectory for well below that. So now we've actually ratcheted up our ambition. And I was able to secure an amendment to the uh, net zero accountability law that we also passed to ensure that we're going to reconsider our ambition yet again by no later than 2025. So we at least have one final opportunity for a, for a final five-year carbon budget. So I'm actually fairly optimistic that we are going to continue to drive down emissions. We have the most credible plan, I think, by, by any measure, certainly with greater specificity. And we are going to do our part domestically, where I am turning my attention increasingly is ensuring that we also do our part to contribute to international climate finance. We've recently doubled our contribution, but I, th I think there's still a ways to go when you consider the equities. We've benefited as a country so much from fossil fuels, and I think there's more for us to do. Well, that brings us to time. Thanks very much for joining me today. Yeah, I wish we'd also talked about the opioid crisis because that's also something we, we aren't talking about yes. as much. But uh, that's that's an issue I'll keep working on. And there's there is some good news in the platform as well, though. You know, all all parties and all members of parliament need to continue to push on that one too. But anyway, I, I appreciate the time. And that brings us to time. I'd like to close with a thank you to my guests today, Angela McCune of the New Democratic Party, Anna Mae Paul, leader of the Green Party, and Nathaniel Erskine-Smith of the Liberal Party. And of course, as always, my thanks to Carolyn Smith and Aaron Reynolds, who make this show not just possible, but much better than it would have been without them. And to each and every one of you who listened and who is a Canadian elector, I'll remind you that Election Day is September 20th. We'll see you again here in two weeks.